0: Welcome to another VIA Space. Actually, it is rocket science podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about cooling a rocket and how we go about keeping it from melting. I'm joined today by Sean Bowman and Daniel Garcia here. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves to talk about what you do here? Sure, go ahead, Dan. Okay,
1: yeah, sure. So um, I'm what's considered a multi-physics analyst here at VIA. Uh, Basically, I simulate different components of the rocket engine and also the external vehicle geometry for aerodynamics. So um, I basically get a lot of the CAD and geometries that the design teams make, and I simulate those in order to see, you know, how it works, get a better intuitive understanding of what the physics is going on inside of them, and um, kind of give my feedback to the team so that they can
2: further enhance their their designs. And this is a fun topic of conversation for me today, because my uh, title is Fluid Thermal Control. I work on uh, the design of uh, the fluid systems for the vehicle. So one of them being their uh, regeneratively cooled nozzle, which is, we'll get into that in a little bit, I guess, how do we keep the nozzle cooled? So uh, why don't sure, we... Uh, yeah.
0: Well, why don't we kick it off there, right? I mean, you got a rocket shooting out, you know, exhaust, the temperature, of the surface of the sun. How do you not just melt everything away, Sean?
2: It's such a thoughtful question, right? Because we, it's... a. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to, to any kind of level of technical person. You have exhaust gases are super hot and you think that, oh, metal melts when things are you know really hot. How hot does something have to get to melt the metal? Well, right. our exhaust is like Brian said, the temperature of the surface of the sun basically. So pretty much anything's gonna melt under those circumstances. And the line of reasoning becomes, well, that's really hot. How do we keep it from melting and turning into a puddle of goop it needs yep. to maintain its shape as we fly, right? Otherwise, we're, mm-hmm. otherwise we're having a bad day. And we won't be going to space. So there's many different ways to keep uh, rocket hardware cool. And I think the, the most hilarious one that engineers came up with is, ah, to let it melt. Whatever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's one of the <laughs> ways. <of, laughs> Ablative cooling is the technical yep. term. Yep, yep. Um, one of the ways that's that you keep something cool is to not keep it cool. Just make it out of something that's designed to melt in a very predictable way. Mm-hmm. um and that's uh the way that some concepts work and there's also uh you can do what's called film cooling which is where you get some uh liquid like some some extra fuel in most cases and you pass it along the nozzle walls um to create like a, a layer, of like a buffer layer between the exhaust gases and the walls of the nozzle. If you watch uh, old footage of a Saturn V taking off, the big black streak that comes out before the orange as one of those lifts off is actually because they film cool, uh, the back half really? of their nozzle. So you, uh, you get all that unburned fuel and there's like a big black like section of the exhaust plume coming out of the F1 engines. Uh, until it mixes with enough air in the uh, oxidizer in the air to turn orange. And that's why when you watch old footage of a Saturn V go off, they do that. Um, the, the back half of the nozzles, that is, that's why they uh, have that. But what, we're, what we do uh, here at VIA and, and my, uh, my little pet project design uh, that I've developed is the uh, regeneratively cooled nozzle. And that's basically just a fancy way of saying, in order to keep it cool, we pass a bunch of really cool fluid in between the walls of the nozzle as it's operating. And that serves many purposes. And we're able to use that energy that we get from uh, heating up that fluid to, to run different parts of the rocket as well. But the, you know, the cool thing about it is that it's just such an extreme environment because you have cryogenic fluid inside the walls of the nozzle. You have surface of the sun, hot exhaust gases on the other side on the hot wall and separating them is just tiny, tiny amounts of metal. And it's right. all gotta- you know someone pointed out to me recently that that little area right there
0: is one of the highest temperature gradients in the universe the fact that you've got 3,000 something degree Kelvin fluid right there just one millimeter of wall or, or less around there and then cryogenic fluid on the other side that's nowhere else in in, in nature does that happen at that? you know, steep of a, of a change over such a
2: small area. That's, that's incredible. One of the steepest temperature gradients humans have ever made. That's for, that's for sure. Cause yeah, you have, yeah. um, you have unthinkably hot and then just the tiniest, tiniest little gap. And then it's almost as cold as is physically possible. People may be familiar with the concept of zero Kelvin. That's the, the premise of oh the coldest anything could ever be. Well, our cryogenic propellant is only mo- moderately above that temperature, and then on the other side of that wall is is you know, like we keep saying, the surface of the sun. So that's a, a ludicrous temperature gradient, and it's uh, my job, one of many, to make sure that that system works properly. That we get all the the thermal characteristics, and and uh, and with the help of our analysis team, which is here with us today to prove that those things work correctly yeah, and um yeah. and actually i think maybe that's a good segue if uh if we have any uh you know extra thoughts about the operation of the you know or the physics the thermal physics that go right on well i was the just about to ask dan
0: here he's uh if, if i remember correct he's been doing some work recently on simulating our cooling channels and, and looking for different different aspects in that so tell us a little bit about that dan what are you looking for when you do that
1: exactly um yeah you know i've also had help from brian and also sean whenever you make the you know i need the cad the proper geometries to go into it but uh simulation is kind of a good segue between testing right because testing is expensive it, it costs a lot to make stuff mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. To, to test it till it's it's failed. so simulation allows us to leverage the use of computers and we reach the point where we can use these powerful computers to kind of simulate how that physics is going on inside and. The reason we try to simulate it is because the the mathematical foundations aren't really established or aren't fully understood. So Mm -hmm. we kind of brute force our way and kind of partition this uh, whole entire domain inside the cooling channels um, to kind of see it. And what we're trying to look for is key performance characteristics. Um, First off, we want to make sure we're pumping enough heat from the wall so it doesn't melt, right? What we're trying to see is we're trying to see the metal that that uh, hot gas is touching is not beyond the melting point of the metal that it's made of. of. Yeah, so yeah, Something that's very important to look at when we do look at simulations is we have these colorful plots, these contours they're called, that we can kind of see what what the temperatures are along this channel from a simulation standpoint. Wow. It's, not, it's not going to be 100% accurate to reality, but it does allow us to have an intuition, a kind of a behavioral um, intuition of what's going to happen with that. Another key performance uh, characteristic is like how much uh, pressure drop we get, which is, you you might be familiar with the concept of a pump, you know, a pump raises the pressure head of a certain liquid from lower to higher. Well, when you pass fluid through these channels, you're kind of losing some of that momentum, some of that velocity, Mm -hmm. some of that energy going Mm -hmm. into these. And we want to make sure that at the end of this cooling channel, there's enough pressure to go into the combustion chamber and allow it to actually react with our fuel grain, which is a very important characteristic. It Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how much heat you pull. If for you know, your cooling channel does not allow you to inject the remaining fluid into the, into the combustion chamber. Um, Yeah. And uh, along with that, there's a plethora of different things that we're looking into that Sean kind of, you know, points me towards, we're trying to see how much it rotates or, or how much, our uh, cooling channels are having this thing called turbulence. It's this chaotic motion that allows cooler cooler um, cooler particles to collide with the wall. and it, it just we're just trying to get as much use of our working fluid, our oxidizer that we're passing through these cooling channels. Wow, yeah. Something I find really incredible about what we do here is is the way we
0: can iteratively design with these simulations. So Sean and Dan here, you guys can pass back and forth all this information you're receiving. And Sean can update the design. Dan can test it again without even manufacturing anything. And Mm -hmm. bring it back to Sean, back and forth. So so that pressure drop thing you were talking about there is pretty interesting. So that's almost like an an efficiency thing there, right? A Mm -hmm. high-pressure engine is going to be more efficient than a a lower-pressure one. So correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things you're looking for is to make sure we're not losing too much of our pressure of our energy going through the different
1: components of our system, right? Exactly. And, you know, Sean can attest to this. Uh, What we're looking at is the ratio, right? Like how much heat are we pulling from the system versus how much penalty do we have to pay? How much pressure are we losing because we're extracting this heat? And, you know, there's some complex physics that goes on when you heat a certain pipe. But um, at the end of the day, making sure that that ratio is correct and above that, making sure that the pressure at the end of this tunnel, that this fluid is going on a journey in, is enough pressure to go past our injector into our combustion chamber and allows us to kind of see that. Am I correct, Sean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also... To, to give maybe like a, a a layman's definition of the engine cycle and how it works, because to, to assume that that's obvious maybe is, I was is just going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. So, Sorry so we've been talking pretty, no, no. And it's, and it is a perfectly uh, apt segue into, into explaining a little bit about the expander cycle and, and yeah, sort so of, I mean, where of does that high level concept. Go, right Exactly. So uh, a brilliant question that was asked of us recently, it was a very thoughtful question was, if you are taking away energy from your exhaust, uh, you know, because there's energy there and, and there's too much of it, in fact, we need, to, we need to mitigate some of that energy so our walls don't melt. Are you losing efficiency in your engine because you are, you know, cooling that wall down and sapping away energy from the system? Well, it's, it's actually quite the opposite. We want, our system is self-contained. You have a fluid and you're pumping it up to high pressure, like Dan said. And then where the next place it goes is to run through the walls of the nozzle. But then after that, it goes, uh, it is a self-contained system where now that that fluid is full of energy, it can run turbo machinery. It can uh, spin the turbine and create that self-sustaining cycle with the turbo pump and then be passed to the injector and the combustion chamber. And they call that process uh, the expander cycle.
0: The, the heat that gets added to those channels, that's, that's what powers the turbine, right? which powers the pump, which pulls our oxidizer down. And on top of that, something else I heard when I was there, when someone asked that question, I remember (laughs) that something else, I think you had mentioned was that, that heat, even though it's getting used to do work on other things, it still comes back into the, into the combustion chamber eventually anyway, because the thing we're using to cool the nozzle is the liquid oxygen, right? So that just Mm -hmm. makes its way right back in anyways.
1: And, correct. you know, yeah. Sean, you, correct me if I'm wrong, we do have to heat that oxidizer. We can't have it going into the combustion chamber in cryogenic temperatures, correct?
2: Exactly. It needs to be uh, heated up, expanded, if you will, <laughs> as the name maybe suggests, <laughs> uh, from its cryogenic state into a more usable state for the combustion chamber. Now, technically, and these are, these are problems that have uh, maybe obvious solutions if you know where the problem comes from. You don't have to keep it as a cryogen. If you want to combust, you could have gaseous oxygen, but you're constrained by your volume. Your rocket can only be so big, or or you want it rather to be small because it's going to cost a lot of weight and energy to lift it up and take it to space, you know. So how do we store more oxygen per volume? Well, you make it real cold until it turns into a liquid, and then you can put it into a tank, and, and that's how you can store it. But it needs to be heated up before you can use it properly. So this nozzle, of course, uh, the concept of using a regeneratively cooled nozzle to heat up your oxidizer by passing it through the walls of your nozzle is one of the methods by which you can uh, heat your oxidizer up to a more usable form. Incredible.
0: Very efficient cycle, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we love the expander cycle. <laughs> it's very,
1: yeah, it's a very beautiful, intricate dance, like how these components interact with each other. and. When you affect one component, the other components get affected. So it's, it's a very important to get the behavior of just not the cooling channels, but other components as well, and seeing how, how well they integrate, how well
2: they mesh together. To yeah. They all have to dance together, like Dan said, in a, beautiful, in a beautiful ballet, a symphony, an orchestra.
0: Yeah, right. So speaking of cooling, I got another question for you, too. So we've talked a lot about how you cool the nozzle of an engine, right? How, how you keep that engine from overheating, what you do with that heat. But here's a, here's a little question a lot of people don't know. When you've got something coming back from space, when it's coming through the atmosphere, it's, you know, there's the typical videos of just huge flames coming off of it from all the friction with the atmosphere, right? So why doesn't that happen during ascent when we're going up? Why is that not as much of
1: a concern when we're going up into the atmosphere and out of it? So I, I do do simulations on external vehicle geometry, so I do see this happening. Um, Essentially, you can you can think of when we're on the surface, we start at zero velocity, and then we slowly build up towards that very high velocity. I say slowly, but of course, it's a very violent reaction. We're throwing out the back end, but it, it, there's a concept. This, there's this concept called Mach number, which is your ratio of how fast you're going versus what is the speed of sound? The these molecules, they have a certain speed limit, if you will, on, on how much they can communicate with each other. So. At low altitudes, you're kind of going relatively, you know, between the one to five, maybe you might go to six or seven Mach number, Mm -hmm. where the regime of air, the columns of air you're going in are dense enough to affect you in that way. Um, Once we reach orbital speeds, um, any typical launch vehicle has to go in an orbit. Uh, it, It does not go straight up into the atmosphere. It has to have a lot of velocity. Once it's in that orbit, it's kind of, most, more likely than not, it should be above the atmosphere, at least in a region of atmosphere where the density of the particles don't allow it to heat up as, as much when you're re-entering, you have the opposite. You're going from this very fast velocity, like obscene amount in the orders of thousands of miles per hour. And then all of a sudden you're hitting the atmosphere, you're going to the lower parts of the atmosphere where that density has a more profound effect. So you're going to have a lot more friction. And, you know, it is uh, our prerogative to design these things so that it can go into a sense. So we have to incorporate certain materials and uh, we we have to keep account of the amount of heating that we're getting from going up into our launch. Right. And yeah. that's part of what you look for in your simulations of aerodynamics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. There's yeah. there's some complex physics going on. Um, you know, once you go into the supersonic regime, there's these things called shocks, which... The particles don't want to move, right? You're you're you could think of think of like a stagnant column of air, like just yeah. a box, and the particles are not moving. And um, then there's this thing that's going three thousand miles per hour that just collides with it. Yeah. Those particles don't want to move, so they're they're very angry, and they kind of tend to make these beautiful uh, shapes that are called shocks mm-hmm. as they try to move because they can't push past each other faster than the speed of sound. They have a speed limit and that that arises that gives a lot of friction and that gives a lot of heat and it's something we have to look into during our ascent. Well, I think we learned a lot today about
0: different heating and cooling elements of rockets, about uh, about nozzles and how we, you know, keep cool while ascending up into space. So um thank you everybody. Thank you Dan and Sean for joining us here. Thank you all for joining us on the Via Space. Actually, it is Rocket Science Podcast. Please go subscribe and follow us on all of our platforms at Viaspace. And if you have any questions for us in the future, feel free to send them in to media at viaspace.com. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks
1: for having us.